0: G'day everyone. Welcome back to the Talking Leadership Podcast series. Today's guest is Zanny Christofferson. She is the Chief Operating Officer with Priestley's Gourmet Delights. A fantastic podcast and a great insight into her leadership pathway. As always, thank you for supporting the podcast and we'll hand over to Zanny. Welcome to the podcast, Annie Christopherson. How are you, Zanny?
1: I'm well, thank you, Eric.
0: First question to lead things off: your leadership and its beginnings. Can you take us through that, please?
1: Started my career out as a ten-year-old making cake boxes for my cake for my family's cake manufacturing business. Throughout that time, I had many roles, so I would be taken into the business on my school holidays. And I would do things like decorating cakes, packing cakes, putting Smarties on the Smarty Pants cookies. Um, Every now and then I'd escape to do the sales side of the business where I would do sales orders, put the orders in with the runs. Sheep. And then obviously at the ripe old age of 16, I decided that I never wanted to work for my family business. So escape and worked for a company called Esprit in the retail sector. Worked there till I was 18 until I figured out that I could actually make more money back at mum and dad's family business. So integrated back into the cake packing side of the business and finished my business bachelor of business degree. Once I did that, I worked in shop floor control in the finance department of the business before deciding that I didn't want to work with them anymore. Had a stint in New Zealand with the New Zealand manufacturing business. Came back to Australia for six months and decided that I wanted to go overseas to Europe. Lived in the UK for two and a half years and worked for a high frequency trading company in the business development side. So very different industry. Absolutely loved my time over there, but decided to come back for personal reasons because my Nana at the time was very ill and I'm a very family orientated person. So came back to Australia. And at the time I was sitting around doing not too much. And my father said to me, what are you doing with your life? And I, I looked at him and I said to him, I was like, dad, nothing really. And he's like, right, I've got a project for you. So we had a typical fashion, we had a negotiation where I was like, right, I'm working nine till three, this is what you need to pay me. And he agreed to the terms and conditions, which is uh, very unusual for my father, for anyone that knows him. And that's where my career in leadership really began. So I did the project management work for him and fixed a challenge that they'd experienced in the business for the last three years, interviewed for the plant manager role, which I wasn't too sure that I actually wanted to take because I recognized within my myself that I was very good at completing my own work, but had never had to manage people. So I went from managing myself to managing 150 people overnight. So it was very daunting for me. And of course, I made a lot of big mistakes. But I guess on the flip side of that, I learned very fast. And I guess leadership doesn't automatically happen when you reach a certain pay grade. Hopefully you find it there, but there's no guarantees. And then in order to transform and lead teams for myself, I had to learn how to better manage my own emotions, especially frustration, learn how to deal with things like rumors, unconstructive criticism, and get better at the corporate politics. And that I also discovered that my words suddenly had a much greater impact and that my feedback could uplift or diminish. And my opinions shape the decisions that we make as a company. So yes, it was quite shock, I guess, for me to go from nothing to 150 people overnight.
0: You said initially you wanted to run a mile from working in the family business. Coming back around to giving it another crack, do you think your experiences in other work settings opened your mind to giving a go at working within the family business, that it was your experiences of other industries that was maybe one of the catalysts to say, hey, I'll, I'll give this a go when maybe five years ago, I wouldn't even given it a second thought?
1: If it hadn't have been for my dad encouraging me to get back into the business, I wouldn't have looked there. At the time when I came back, I was looking for finance positions, but because of the nature of the business that I worked for in the UK, it was hard to get that sort of experience in Brisbane. And I wanted to be close to my family. That was really important to me because I'd spent so such a long time away from them that I just couldn't fathom living anywhere else. I actually interviewed for a job in the US. But by the time I worked out, you know, rent in New York, having to pay rent, medical insurance, etc, cetera, etc, cetera, just wasn't worth my time. So would I have come back if my dad hadn't have asked me to? I probably wouldn't have. I think as well, like I've always been really passionate about pre Priestley's. I love the products. I've always loved the people that I've worked with, you know, a lot of the people on the manufacturing floor, like uh, Mingo, he's been with us for 21 or 22 years. So we're talking like I've known them more than, for more than half my life. So it's literally like working with my siblings.
0: Do you think it's more difficult or less difficult to apply what you've learned as a leader when the people you're working with are like extended family?
1: Look, I think as long as you're treating them fairly and with respect you know, it's about having the conversation in the right way. So I think initially, when I first took on the plant manager role at Priestley's, I found it challenging. But as I developed my leadership skills and my capabilities and my understanding and my empathy for people, it became easier because I knew how to have the conversation in the right way, rather than just hitting them with, hey, that's not the way to do it. Do you know what I mean?
0: You've had international experience with jobs. You've come back to Australia. You're now very much in the thick of it in the business that you're working in. Tell me from your travels again, no right or wrong answer here. How do you define leadership?
1: Yeah, so for me, it's the process of social influence, which maximizes the efforts of others towards an achievement of a goal. So leadership stems from, from social influence, so not authority of power. So it's about influencing the people around you, not a dictatorship. Leadership requires others. And that implies that they don't need to be direct reports. So you can be a leader in your community, in your family, in your friendship group. But then, I guess you know, in the corporate environment, it's it's those. Well, actually, you don't actually have to have direct reports either. It's it's however you can influence people to do things to achieve a goal. It's not specific to personality traits, attributes, or a title. And so there are many styles, many paths to effective leadership. And it includes a goal. So not influence with no intended outcome. So you have to achieve something. So it could be a sports team, you know, wanting to win a grand final, et cetera, et cetera, but it must include a goal.
0: That's interesting. The the human elements of that definition uh, come out quite strongly. I'm a believer in... uh, a a leader is leadership the process of it is of being a service to others i i I really believe that and um uh, for those that are that are are following this podcast the discussions that danny and i have been involved in in the previous podcast with the um, best practice network i think the that those elements of what is in a leader that that we are that we can get behind or always around those people elements. I think they're critical, but I, I have some views that I, I will share with you as the podcast goes on about the suite of those skills. And I'm I'm a big believer in first, second and third order skill sets that make for more effective leadership and Absent some of those things, you're not going to be as effective as you could be. And I use, I tend to use the word a lot. Effective. I don't like good or bad or somewhere in between. I think effectiveness and going by your definition, effectiveness is you've got to reach a goal, whether it's a monetary goal or a community goal or some kind of goal that you're aiming for. It's yeah, it's, it's interesting that the human element seems to be coming up a lot in my discussions, and that you're dealing with people every day. You can't be the. Di- tater that you said that you you can't come from a a place of power like the command and control aspect of leadership i think is not there for every industry but i think it still exists and the fact that you you've can you've reflected on it and made a conscious decision not to to do that speaks a lot for where your leadership is going to go in the future sort of taking people with you being a key element Would, would you agree with that
1: Yeah, I would. And I think it comes back to one of my um, biggest lessons that I reflect on a lot is that my words have such an impact on people. So if I'm coming from a negative place, you know, that connotation, they're going to feel that. Whereas I can still get the same outcome coming from a really positive place.
0: This idea that what you say to people doesn't have an effect on them, I think is just bullshit. What you say matters. And in in the world of work, if the people around you know that you're a key decision maker if they don't feel that you trust them or you're not invested in what they're doing then why are they going to commit to you
1: i'll tell you a story so one of my leadership lessons i went to the melbourne business school and i did the looking glass experience is the best thing to do in your career ever so if anyone's going to do it, tune out now to you in a nutshell. So you sent to Melbourne Business School. It was at the Mount Eliza campus that I did it. It's five days. You go not knowing anything. So they call a meeting on the first night and you get, or, or the first day, sorry, and you get allocated these positions. So someone's the CEO, someone's the executive, and then it, it you know, it goes down there. So you might be an accounts person, etc., etc. So the CEO gets delivered this, you know, big box, you know, think about the, the filing cabinet boxes. So the CEO gets, the, you know, a big box of that. The executive team get three quarters of the box. And then as it goes down the chain of command, they get less and less and less. So you're allowed one night to prep and, you know, you get sent away with, you must know everything in that box, right? So I stayed up till five o'clock in the morning. We had to be at breakfast, you know, at seven o'clock and work started at eight o'clock. And the biggest lesson I learned there is that I had I didn't have to do anything. I just had to understand, know that my People, the subject matter ex- experts knew everything that they needed to do. And all I had to do as an executive was influence them to get the best outcome for the business. And it was one of my biggest life lessons and light bulb moments where it was like, a, oh, aha, uh-huh. I don't actually need to know everything because my team are the subject matter experts. And as long as they trust me and I trust them, we can get the best out of each other.
0: The ability to cut the umbilical cord in a leadership role and be reliant on the expertise of others to- takes a lot for some people like being able to let go and not micromanage your way to an early grave is difficult to do.
1: It was a big aha uh-huh moment for me because I was like, oh my god, I've just I've been going about this the wrong way and like I need to change. So it was it was really good.
0: Okay, so this isn't just you reflecting back now at that time it changed the way you thought about your leadership. Yeah, yeah okay. Okay. We'll
1: stop because It made me understand because I think at the time I was probably the one that was going, okay, well, I need to understand intimately all the details that are happening, you know, from my direct reports. But I don't or I didn't because I knew that, well, to your point, you know i didn't have to micromanage in order to get the outcome
0: when you're having these conversations that these learnings come out and that it's it's good to hear that in something that in a course that you've obviously paid to go and be part of that you've got something very critical out of that process in terms of your own learning as a leader so let me ask you something you're in the role that you're in now obviously you're forced in some circumstances and then not forced in others to make decisions about how the business operates. I've termed the the next area that I like to discuss around the, uh, the lonely road of leadership. Now, do you believe it is a lonely road or is it as lonely as you make it?
1: I think it's as lonely as you make it, but it can be a lonely road as well. And the reason I say that is because I think that people have expectations that leaderships are perfect and then you can project that, leader, that expectation on yourself. I also think that they that a lot of you direct reports and the people around you think that leaders, leaders shouldn't make mistakes. We're, of course we're going to make mistakes. Um, we're imperfect and that's the part I think of learning as well is that sometimes we need to make those mistakes so that we can learn and progress forward.
0: If you ever meet a leader that says they don't ever make mistakes and you're dealing with a narcissist and you need to be running the other way real quick, I think.
1: Yeah, but some of my greatest lessons I've learnt are from the ones that I've made mistakes. I just think that leaders sometimes have unfair expectations on themselves to be perfect all the time. And I think it's about living or or, uh, having humility and owning up to your mistakes when you have made that mistake.
0: You raise an interesting point. Just let me unpack this a little bit if we could. You you talked about your direct reports, potentially thinking that you're not going to make mistakes as the leader. Do you think in your travels, not just yourself, but leaders that you've met, do you think sometimes those of us in these roles, whatever the leadership position is, that you project what you think others are thinking back on yourself and you put pressure on yourself unnecessarily, almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy Well, they think I'm mistake-free, so I need to act like like I never make a damn mistake. Does that that ring true for you?
1: I think it does in certain circumstances. I'm really lucky, I have really good relationships with my direct reports. You know, it's something that I focus on. I try and make sure that we have conversations that don't, not just work, because I want, I want them to see me as a person and I see them as people as well. And, you know, I really appreciate everything that they do for me because without them, I am not successful. I know that I need each one of their skill sets in order to make sure that Priestley's as a business continues to grow. So, you know, we have really good working relationships and also have a really great feedback loop. So they feel that I've been unfair or vice versa you know we're big enough and bad enough to sit down and have a chat about it and move forward
0: that's incredibly nice to hear these are the kinds of businesses that everyone wants to work where your boss makes a concerted effort to just appear human, but actually opens herself up to that human element. I think those that don't, and it's always a, you know, leadership is a conscious choice. Measuring success, what are the the non-financial measures of success that you believe are critical as part of your leadership toolkit?
1: So for me, it's about how successful my people are. So my direct reports and the people underneath them so achieving their goals both from a business and personal perspective Uh, apart from that I guess asking for direct feedback as well so I have had 360 degree reviews and they're always helpful in terms of personal development for myself and um, my leadership impact.
0: There's a raw smile on your face when you say that. Is that, can they be be confronting? I've I've never had one done.
1: They're horrendous. When I started out as a COO, I had a lot of lessons to learn. As you climb up the ladders, it becomes very political. In that instance, I jumped my boss as well. Like it was, it was a horrible situation to be in. So for me, I had to change my way of thinking, my communication, my expectations of people. So I had a 360 degree review when I was maybe six months into my role and it was challenging to hear the feedback, but it also showed that I'm incredibly self-aware. So I'm in the 99 percentile of people that, so it My self-awareness was almost identical to my direct reports and the people that provided feedback on me. So I marked myself exactly the same as what they marked me.
0: That's good. It means means you got your finger on the pulse of your people. That that's quite quite good. Obviously, there were some others that uh, other bits of feedback you found challenging. I I don't. I didn't. I'm not meaning to pry, and you don't have to get into the details of the feedback. But I've heard 360 degree feedback processes before, and I've never been subjected to one myself. And by subjected, I don't mean it's necessarily a negative thing, but Definitely an ego, you're putting your ego out there when you're doing that because it really is a challenge in that sense. Now, I'm not saying it's going to destroy your sense of self, but...
1: No, it, it does. It Look, it depends on the way that you approach it, right? So for me, it was about choosing a few key things that I really wanted to make sure that I would improve and have a better leadership impact on.
0: I think what you're raising here, and this is, um, you, you touch on something I've been thinking about. I truly believe, and I'm happy for anyone who wants to come on to challenge my thinking on this, because it's just the whole point of doing the podcast is I believe the, the most reflective leaders in the world are the better leaders. Without naming names, can you think about the most reflective leader you've ever dealt with and the least reflective?
1: I don't know that I've met someone that's super self-reflective. I haven't been exposed to a person that actively asks for feedback either. So I don't think that I've actually come across a leader that is very self-aware. In terms of not being very self-aware, they're very destructive people, right? Because they don't understand the impact that goes around them.
0: I think, given that, that you've had some experience in the world of work, that you can't find a truly reflective leader that you can think of immediately, but you can almost yeah. immediately go to where the bad ones are.
1: Do you think though it's a generational thing as well? You
0: know- oh yeah, oh, okay. excellent. Look, my guest is asking me a question. So do I think it's generational? Eighty twenty in my mind. Yeah. To answer that question, I, I believe the more effective leaders, as you have some some experience under your belt and you're a open to learning in. Every aspect of that word that you become more reflective as you've had time served. I don't care what industry it is. I think time served can bring that up now. That's not to say that as an excuse not to be reflective from the very start. I think it's such a learned skill and it's something you have to be consciously practicing that it's a culture. It's a culture thing. So to answer your question, I think in the corporate world, I don't believe we challenge ourselves enough to do that because we're busy trying to keep businesses afloat. That would be my answer.
1: I'd agree with you on that.
0: Let me let me put it to you back in that way, because the conversations we've had in the previous podcast and, and offline and now, it seems to me that you have learned the skill of being reflective. Is that something you consciously try to practice for yourself?
1: Yes, I do. And I constantly seek feedback from my direct reports because, well, I guess for me, it's about growth and development, right? And how to best influence and lead them. As people, am I perfect at it? Probably not. You know, there's always room for improvement, but I do actively try and gain feedback.
0: I've personally given up on trying to fly, trying to find perfection in the yeah. leadership game. It's more in progress, um, right? Yeah, Zanny, leader capabilities. What do you believe for effective leadership are the most critical leader capabilities?
1: For me, so I think emotional intelligence is going to be key moving forward. You know, understanding your people that work for you and what makes them tick. And then how do you influence them to get the best out of them? Coming back to being self-aware as well. So, you know, reflecting on yourself, the, the impact that you've had on people. I think as well, um, being resilient to the younger generations are probably less resilient than what the old generations are. So from a resilience point of view, I think being a leader leader is hard. Every day is hard. You're making challenging decisions that are not always going to be the popular decisions, but that's part of your role, whether you like it or not. That's, That's leadership 101. So you need enough resilience to pick yourself or scrape yourself back up off the ground to go again for round two or round three or however many rounds it is. I think in the younger generations, from what I've seen, and this is a very generalised comment, is that parents are going in to fight for their children rather than letting their children fight their own battles. And I think that that from a children's growth perspective, they need to be able to learn how to fight their battles from a young age. Yes, the parent can be behind coaching and mentoring, but the child needs ownership over that in order to gain the experiences and the lifelong skills to be able to grow as a human.
0: We could do a whole another podcast on that. I have... um... I don't think I can disagree. I think what we see in the schools and what we see with leaders on the come up, I think, is a reflection of where society is going. One, I was asked uh, for the sake of, of of not losing this particular point in this conversation, because I think it's incredibly important to be talking about this, that I was asked to summarize my leadership journey in, in a, um, I was part of a national leadership program with the seafood industry. And, and 10 years on, I was asked back to talk about what I'd learned and after a decade, I would learned some shit and I was prepared to talk about it. And one thing is, I, I say this with all due humility, facts don't give a crap about your feelings, but I understand that you need to be aware of people's feelings when you're conveying factual information. So having an awareness, I, I think, demonstrates that you can have facts and talk about issues, but, but also being aware that you may offend or there may be issues there, but nobody dies if you offend them. They will wake up tomorrow morning. Okay. It's more, if you're talking, if you have, if you're bringing facts to a, to a discussion, you can't really go wrong. If you're using science and data and, and you're talking about realities, then that's great. But if you're talking about subjective things and whether you're, you don't like somebody's opinion, you can't really do a lot about that. And I think understanding the difference is something, is a nuance that's not well taught at schools, nor do I think it's the role of teachers to do that. It's just living in reality. And if, if you can't delineate the two... About-
1: I could talk about the education
0: system more. Sure, sure. sure. <laughs> I won't get into it. No, that that's fine. And I, I believe this is an area worth discussing in yeah, other podcasts. And I particularly would love to have you back on this because as a leader in an industry, if I asked you the question, and again, uh, if you don't have an answer, that's fine. Because again, there's no right or wrong here. But if I asked you the question, do you have a gut feeling that our schools our learning institutions, be they schools or universities or TAFE, are actually delivering fit-for-future employees, let alone leaders? Okay. The, and so if the it's answer to the question no. is no, okay, it's a hard no. I'll,
1: I'll just talk from my personal experience. Sure. So I went to a private school in, in, in Brisbane, and I would say that we, did, we were very book smart, but not world smart. And if we're leaders, we need to be world smart, not book smart. I then went and did my Bachelor of Business at QUT thinking, great, I'm going to get some great life skills. And yes, they're very good at theory, very good at theory. But where's the practical side of it? I learnt more as child and a teenager growing up in business than I ever learned at high school and university. And to that point, I would challenge whether you need a university degree if you've been brought up in business or had a lot of life experience in business, because you learn more about what makes the world go round, you know, from real life experiences than sitting at your desk, writing a essay on a book.
0: I. Happen to agree, but I think the, that conversation is nuanced. So, from someone who is a big supporter of education at whatever level, I think what education does, if we're being fair, Dinkum about this, is that schools um, up to grade twelve, and then before you get into the the tertiary sector, whatever that part of the tertiary sector you go into, I think it's not so much what to think; it's giving you critical skills on how to think. So that. Whether we're in agreement on whether schools do that well or not is is up for debate. And I, I I truly believe that when you get to either TAFE or university or or private colleges, it's application and learning of a particular skill set with the understanding, and this is the bit that I think is missing and where I agree with you wholeheartedly, that no institution, no consultancy, no group can prep you for the world of work and that what experience will teach you in a job you, you can't bottle that and put that in a course because if you could people would be going to those courses every day to learn the reality of the world of work and you know it, it i th- i think it's undoable and so that that bit in between is the bit that we need to constantly be looking at and maybe working to address but can we get it perfect no I don't think so I
1: also think that the you know from a schooling point of view they're lagging behind what's actually happening in industry so maybe it's you know industry partnering with the schools and the universities more so that they're getting real life experience and understanding what industry is doing rather than having a lag effect if that makes sense.
0: It really does. Mate, this is is one of these podcasts where the amount of other topics that we've brought up, I think are well worth exploring and, and they're connected to this thing about leadership. Because another key question is, are our universities, by way of example of one set of institutions, are they helping to produce and educate professionals that have got what we need them to have to engage in the world of work as graduates? Are they doing everything they can? And I don't know what the answer to that question is.
1: Is industry doing enough as well? It's about making sure that we're letting the universities are working with them you know, so that they understand what we're looking for so that they can cater to that need. So it's kind of push and pull
0: with you on that, that it's not just up to the universities or tapes And yeah, the, the fact that we're having this conversation and I, I had this conversation with some people 10 years ago in my industry, the fact that it's still coming up means that, that those connections on how we keep them current and relevant still needs a bit of work and th- it's a fruitful space to play in, I, I would suggest. But this podcast about you, Zannie. So last question to focus on you is looking back on your leadership pathway. If you had to go back to a younger version of yourself What would you say to you about being a more effective leader?
1: I think probably just be patient. Don't expect that you're going to be perfect every step of the way. And as I said to you before, focus on progress rather than perfection. I think that leadership and definitely being the CEO of Priestley's has been one of the hardest things that I've ever been, I've ever done in my life. But I've been very lucky to be encouraged and supported by my my network, you know, both professionally and personally to always take steps to grow and develop. And that in order to be better, you're going to have to go through some pain because learning and putting yourself in uncomfortable situations aren't always going to be nice. So, you know, be, be okay to be stuck in that position where it's a little bit uncomfortable for a little while, whilst you learn and develop and that it's just a moment in time and that each day will get easier.
0: Tell us a bit more about Gourmet Delights and this is your 30 seconds to give your your business of So over to you, mate.
1: Thanks, Eric. So Priestley's Gourmet Delights makes the best quality cakes and desserts for the food service industry. We're very much the cake in the cabinet and we're here to support your business to make it a success. So Absolutely. If you need anything, reach out to the team.
0: There you go. And I'll I'll put uh, your details, your LinkedIn profile and the business uh, email on the podcast description, Zanny. So for those listening, I've been speaking to Zanny Christofferson, who is the Chief Operations Officer at Priestley's Gourmet Delights. Thank you, Zanny, for your time.
1: Thanks, Eric.
0: And for those listening, this has been Talking Leadership and we'll catch you all on the next podcast.